Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. This week, we're looking at developments in the world of AMD. And in January, The Lancet published studies showing that across four trials, farisimab improved and maintained vision in two leading causes of vision loss and reduced times between treatments. In this episode, we examine the results and implications of the research in an expert discussion. First, though, a reminder that on the 24th of March at 8 p.m. CET, the Israeli Ophthalmological Society will host the next Uretina Case Club. We'll see five intriguing cases with an expert panel discussing each. It's a great way to encounter and consider different clinical challenges, but also see how people approach and overcome them. And the expert panel offer a different dimension in the commentary, making it a really useful educational event. That's the next Uretina Case Club from Israel, hosted by Professor Anat Lowenstein on March 24th at 8 p.m. Check out the Uretina website for registration details. And remember, all Uretina webinars are free to register for anyone. A recording of each is available for one week after the event, but after that, they are only available to members only. So while you register for the webinar, why not check out the membership area and learn more about the other great benefits of Uretina membership. All right, on with the podcast. Now, you may be aware that the results of four studies of forisimab were published earlier this year in The Lancet with seemingly very promising results. Let's take a closer look at the studies and what they tell us now. We're joined by chairs Professor Anat Lowenstein from the Tel Aviv Medical Center and Professor Renier Schlingerman from Amsterdam University and Jules Gonan. They're joined by panelists Professor Ramin Tadioni from Paris University, Professor Sandrine Zweifel from University Hospital Zurich and Professor Usha Chakravarti from Queen's University Belfast. Anat, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Over to you. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and uh, I'm very happy to open this podcast that is going to talk about the uh, new uh, long-acting drugs coming up, and uh, I'm welcoming uh, Ramin, Usha, and Sandrine, our speakers and panelists, and I would like to ask my co-chair, uh, Professor Emilia Schlingerman, to give uh, some background on the topic. Oh, thanks, Annette. Yeah, I think it's good to uh, discuss a little bit of the, uh, the basics of uh angiopoietin 2 before discussing the, uh, the clinical trial results. Of course, everybody knows that, that the microvasculature is uh, lined on the inside by uh, endothelial cells and on the outside by um, parasites or uh, smooth muscle cells. And in, in normal tissues, it's very important that the blood vessels have a, a proper homeostasis and are not easily disturbed in their functions in permeability and uh, regulating uh, other functions. Um, so there are very tight controlling mechanisms uh, that if there would be some VGF along that they wouldn't start leaking right away. And one of those mechanisms is by interactions between these endothelial cells and parasites. And um, one of the, the systems that is in play there is that the, the angiopoietin uh, tie 1 and tie 2 system. And the, um, the tie 1 and tie 2 uh, are receptors that are located mainly on uh, the endothelial cells and uh, also uh, on some hematopoietic cells and uh, parasites. And the uh, angiopoietins are the ligands for these receptors and are normally produced by, um, by parasites. And in, in normal conditions, uh, parasites produce angiopoietin 1, which binds to its receptor, TIE 2, 
on the endothelial cells and basically tells the endothelial cells to remain in a quiescent situation. And um, Taiwan, the other receptor, is a, has a co-regulating role. But in pathological conditions, under hypoxia uh, or uh, in the presence of uh, VEGF, uh, this system can, uh, can change. And the, uh, the signaling of angiopoietin 1 can be um, repressed by the presence of angiopoietin 2 which is basically uh, blocks the, um, uh, is basically an antagonistic uh, ligand of the receptor type 2. And when this happens, the endothelial cells are basically told to uh, become activated, and that allows uh, pathological responses like permeability, angiogenesis, inflammation, and uh, also fibrosis. And uh, the signaling of, uh, so angiopoietin 2, when that is present, together with VEGF, that is basically the sort of requisite for, for such pathological uh, situations. And um, if, you're, if there's no VGF and only angiopoietin 2, it also has an effect on the uh, endothelial cells. It makes them uh, basically regress. So ves vessel regression during angiogenesis and wound healing is basically governed by also by angiopoietin 2 when there's an absence of, uh, of VGF. Angiopoietin 2 can also bind to uh, not only to its receptors, but also to integrins. And in that way, also uh, modulate the uh, behavior of parasites and, uh, and other cells. And um, it's not exactly known how, but um, in this way, this system probably also regulates fibrosis. So basically, all the bad things that we see happening in pathological conditions in the retina, increased permeability, angiogenesis, inflammation, and fibrosis, this system has some role. So it's looking good for angiopoietin 2 inhibition. And uh, this has also been tried in experimental uh, models of uh, these uh, situations. And there has been, there's quite a lot of data that suggests that inhib inhibiting angiopoietin 2, in addition to VGF, may have a, an additive beneficial role. And of course, we've had uh, already trials uh, trying to modulate this system. One uh, trial investigated an inhibitor of a cofactor of, uh, of angiopoietin 2 with a, a VTPF, and that, was a, that uh, clinical study was negative. There was also a study where angiopoietin 2 and VGF were inhibited separately, uh, and that was a program that was also uh, stopped. So on the clinical side, there are two studies that have not shown very good benefit of inhibiting angiopoietin 2, but now we also have the, uh, the data on farizumab, which will be explained by the uh, other speakers of our podcast. And for that, I would like to give the word to uh, uh, Ramin Tarioni, who will um, introduce the, uh, the clinical data of, the, uh, of two studies, I think, in with uh, AMD. Ramin? Thank you, Renier, for, for the introduction. And indeed, I'm going to talk a little bit about the farizumab trial on AMD. So these trials are very interesting. That's why they have been published in Lancet. The name is Tenia and Lucerne. These are two sibling studies that are quite similar. First interest, it's more than 1,300 patients included, which is huge studies. Second interest is the protocol, the dosing of farisimab. So aflibercept was given per protocol, but for farisimab, the regimen was very interesting. Patients had four loading dose, and then they were observed with disease activity assessment every month, every four weeks. 
And depending of when the recurrence appears, the disease activity appears, they will be bimonthly or every 12 weeks or every six and weeks until the end of the, the year. The primary endpoint being the average situation between week 40 and 48. So 40, 44, and 48 to include different dosing of different arms. So what are the results? First, in terms of um, visual acuity, patients gain six letter compared to baseline, and this is exactly the same as for afibercept, so it was non-inferior in terms of visual acuity. In terms of anatomy, the decrease in thickness was around 130 microns in both arms, so here also non-inferior to afibercept. The interest comes in terms of interval because in patients treated with afibercept, uh, around uh, 45% since the end of the loading dose were extended to 16 weeks, so every four months, and 33.4% to Q12. That means that more than three quarters of patients right after the loading dose had injection every three months or even less injection or longer interval. In terms of um, side effects, there, there was a, a 1% more intraocular inflammation, but no case of severe or retinal vasculitis events. So to summarize, these two studies that are very interesting uh, goes exactly in the way that uh, Rene, you, you uh, explained about the basic science, showing that by stabilizing these two pathways, there is a way to extend the duration of the effects of the intravitreal injection and to increase the interval between injection. Because by having exactly the same effects on visual acuity and the anatomy, it was possible right after the loading dose to extend for three quarter of patients to three months or more the interval and for a little bit less than half of them, even to four months. So let's see how the situation is in DME, and Sandrine is going to talk about this. Sandrine? Thank you very much, uh, Ramin. Yes, I will uh, going to talk about the phase three Yosemite and uh, Rhine trials. Uh, the one-year results were recently published also in Lancet, as for the results for uh, wet AMD. The two years results have not been published uh, yet, but were presented at the angiogenesis meeting, and I'm happy to share them with you as well. Farisimab has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of uh, DME and for wet AMD. Please note that Farisimab has not been approved uh, for use outside of the US. So the two multi-center also uh, identical randomized double mask trials for DME enrolled almost 1,900 patients with center involving diametic macular edema and a visual acuity of 2040 or worse. Center involving diabetic macular edema was defined based on OCT as a central subfield thickness of 325 microns or more. The final study visit was at 100 week, but patients who completed these uh, phase three trials, Yosemite and Rhine, they um, were eligible to enter the RONE-X long-term extension study. So we will also have uh, results um, about a longer uh, efficacy. 
So the treatment uh, regimens, uh, the three treatment arms were quite similar as you just heard from uh, Professor Tadayoni. Farisimab was dosed every eight weeks after six monthly doses. The second arm was Farisimab according to a personalized treatment interval with adjustable dosing up to every 16 weeks following a four injection loading phase. And the third arm was a flibercept dosed on a label with a five injection loading phase followed by every eight week dosing. Primary endpoint was the mean change in best corrected visual acuity also here averaged over weeks 48, 52 and 56 weeks. Okay, so how did this uh, treat and extend based personalized dosing regimen look like? Patients were followed following four initial Q4 week doses. They continued to receive Q4 week doses until their first achievement of central subfield thickness less than 325 micron. From this point on, treatment interval decisions were based on changes in central subfield thickness, so anatomical changes, and best corrected visual acuity. And these treatment intervals could range from four to 16 week intervals. So let's look at the results. At one year, both Yosemite and Ryan met their primary endpoint demonstrating non-inferiority vision gains with farisimab in both uh, treatment arms versus aflibercept dosed every eight weeks. Mean gains in ETDRS letters ranged from 10.5 to 11.2 letters at one year. These one-year gains, uh, they were maintained through year two and remained comparable to aflibercept dosed every eight weeks. Mean best corrected visual acuity gains at two years range between 9.4 to 11.4 letters across uh, the treatment arms and also uh, across uh, both trials. But what is interesting, what uh, already uh, was pointed out by Professor Tadayoni, also here there was quite a high percentage um, who achieved a long treatment interval. In the farisimab personalized treatment interval arms, over 50% of patients achieved a Q 16-week dosing interval, and over 70% of patients achieved Q 12-week dosing or longer. Two-thirds of the patients in the personalized treatment interval arms achieved and maintained Q 12 or Q 16 weeks dosing without an interval reduction below Q12 weeks through week 56. And the durability of uh, farisimab was actually further extended even in year two. More than 60% of patients achieved Q16 week dosing and almost 80% achieved Q12 week dosing or longer. In both trials, there was also an good anatomical re response, mean reduction in central subfield thickness in the farisimab treated arms were numerically greater relative to aflibercept at one year, and this was also 
move for the second year. What about safety? Overall, also for DME patients, we can say that carizumab was well tolerated. Rates of ocular and non-ocular adverse events were low. There were two cases with uh, uveitis and one case with vitritis, but no case with uh, retinal vasculitis. So in summary, what was shown in these uh, data is that year two data from Yosemite and Rhine, we can actually say that it supports the hypothesis, which was introduced by Professor Schlingmann, that dual inhibition of ANG2 and VGF with farizibab might uh, promote vascular stability and extend treatment durability in patients with DME. And what is interesting, especially in the farizimab personalized treatment interval arms, more than 60% of patients were on a Q16-week dosing at two years, and almost 80% of patients were on a Q12-week dosing or longer. Okay, so uh, I think that we uh, heard a lot of data here, very important data, and uh, I think that there are a few questions that uh, we want to maybe focus a little bit on. Renier, do you want to start and ask our panelists, uh, who are the speakers, and also Professor Ucha Chakravarti, a few of the questions that you wanted to focus on? Yes, of course. Well, of course, if we hear about the study results, everything looks very good for for map. But um, this wouldn't be a podcast if we wouldn't be asking the question, is that really the case? So, uh, and of course, we all know, and, and this is what I think we, we would like our panelists to, to comment on, is that the study design more or less favors the new drug because the, the comparator is used at a fixed uh, regimen, in this case of eight weekly uh, flibbersteps. And it's the new drug that um, gets the chance to be tested at longer intervals. So I think we, we have uh, some, some burning questions there. And basically, I mean, do we need uh, longer treatment intervals? Well, that's an easy one. I think everybody would, would agree that. But uh, I mean, I think an important questions are, do these trials really provide evidence of more durable treatment for aphorismab? And particularly in the light of what we see in, in daily life with the treat and extent, which we uh, almost everybody of us is using. And uh, Usha, would you like to comment on these questions? Of course, yes. Um, these are fascinating questions. The one point that I would make with regard to durability is that retinal thickness fluctuations is bad for the eye. And we know that. We've seen it in many trials, initially with CAT, the CAT and Ivan meta-analysis and subsequently with Hawk and Harrier and other trials as well. We know that when the fluctuations occur with greater intensity and greater severity, the outcomes are worse, some two lines worse if you take the reference group that do not fluctuate compared to those who do fluctuate. Interestingly, in the Tenai and Lucent trials, the one thing that struck me, which is in favor of this, is that the OCT thickness over time, which is plotted, didn't show as much of the sore-toothed appearance that you observed with the comparator arm of aflibacept. Now, the right analysis to do in this type of situation is to look at the subsets of patients who had these fluctuations versus those who didn't. And I hope that if the, the data do bear out the fact that the ferrocimab arms didn't, did seem to fluctuate less, 
then they should be able to demonstrate some visual benefit in those groups. However, uh, that analysis hasn't been done yet. And as you point out, Reiner, the actual change in function was not, was not staggering compared to the comparator arm. So there was no obvious improvement. So it, the, the data does need to be looked at more closely to see if we can show a true benefit for ANCH2 inhibition. But ANCH2 inhibition should make the pathology or the, the inhibition of the pathological responses to VEGF secretion should be mo modulated much better with ANCH2 inhibition. We all know that and we have so much data from the preclinical models suggesting it. So yes, but the, proof, the, proof, the proof of the pudding is in the human studies. And, and what worries me a little bit, it, it does worry me a little bit that there's, I mean, you would expect a, a, a benefit in efficacy in, to some extent, which may be dampened a bit by the, uh, by the longer intervals. But on the other hand, uh, it does surprise me that there's no signs of, of a difference in efficacy in either of the four studies. Be better uh, analysis of the anatomical outcomes, look for atrophy, look for fibrosis, because if the data hold good and if there is true inhibition of an extended durability, then the chances are that they could show it, but these, this work needs to be done. Uh, Sandrine, how do you think we, we could figure out when this drug is available, how can we figure out in daily practice whether it really, uh, the sort of promise that comes from the studies with its missing data really, how it could fulfill that promise in daily practice? How can we figure that out? Of course, it would have been uh, nice to have, let's say, a force arm in the prospective trials evaluating also a, a treat and extend regimen for a flibercept. So um, at the moment, of course, um, based on, on uh, these protocols, it's not really possible to tell how would have been the uh, outcomes if you would have also a, a treat and extend regimen in, uh, uh, for a flibercept. I think another question when we look in uh, clinical uh, daily practice is that there is a big range. It's a huge spectrum when you look at uh, diabetic patients, especially also when you start the treatment. So when you have like patients with quite a good visual acuity, of course, they are uh, less likely to improve, but maybe they also don't need to be treated as uh, aggressively when you look at the DRCRnet uh, data. I would be very much interested in, in getting actually more information about, also about the subgroups because there were 25% of the patients who already were previously treated and also according to the subgroups uh, based on uh, visual acuity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think we're discussing all trials now at the same time. Ramin, do you, do you see sort of hidden signals with the data that we have at present that there is uh, indeed that you would expect a, a true benefit of verisimab compared to the existing drugs? I mean, there's different way to look to, to it, but if we want to just to remain pragmatic, the drug comes with a regimen. And the regimen, for example, in Tenia and Lucerne, which is just do a loading dose and then observe the patient and then go to the interval immediately after is already a benefit for the patient. It's easy to do. 
Uh, most of the patient will have injection every three months right after the loading dose. So we have it granted, let's say like this. And then maybe later on, we will show that we can do the same thing with other drugs, or we will understand that some subgroups we can do differently. But I think right now, we already have some benefit for, the, for, for our patient in terms of regimen. Then we will look to other data. Indeed, the anatomical value are important too. We have to, to, to see how subgroups react. Everything has been said. Uh, I fully agree with. I have a question, Reiner, if I may, to you as the cell biologist, you know. So in DME, pericytes, well, in diabetic retinopathy, pericytes are lost. We know that, you know, the advanced glycation and products accumulate the retinal vasculature and the cells die. And ANG2, its presence and its and ANG2 signaling in the pathological situation this results in pericyte stripping and loss. So would, how would you advise a company going about doing these kind of studies? What kind of imaging would you like to see? What kind of biology, structural biology information would you like to see collected to prove this point? Well, of course, I mean, of course, diabetic retinopathy is a, is a multiphasic disease. And our patients with the diabetic maculedema or proliferative diabetic retinopathy are in, in the sort of for the final phases of, of real pathology and, and vision threatening complications. And the, the preclinical phase takes 10 to 20 years to develop. And in that phase, parasites are lost. And it has been shown by the group of Hans-Peter Hemmes that angiopoietin 2 is a, is a driver of that or maybe an important driver. So yes, if, if in the early phases of, uh, of diabetes, when we, we don't have a real disease yet in the retina, uh, then, and when parasites are lost, maybe with angiopoint 2 as a mediator, that could be maybe a, a therapeutic um, a target for preventing diabetic retinopathy. Whether that effect on protecting parasites and protecting parasites on the vessel wall is still important in uh, in patients with diabetic maculedema or proliferative disease. Uh, that, that is a question, I think. I, I'm not sure that is the case. could be. And it could be that in the long run, we'll see uh, in patients with DME uh, that we treat with uh, angiopoietin 2 inhibitors, that we could see, just like with anti-VEGF, a sort of long-lasting effect uh, on the uh, underlying disease. It, potentially, that could be the case, yes. I also have a question, if I if I may, do, do any of the panelists, uh, Renier, Usha, Ramin, Sandrine, see any significant safety? Con- are you worried about safety concerns with Farisimab? There is some kind of a feeling that sometimes we pay a price for the long duration by maybe more side effects. So I wonder if uh, you think that there is something there, or do we feel completely safe with this coming up drug, in your opinion? The signals are not as intense as we saw with brolicizumab, even in the trials. However, with verisimab, compared to aflibacep in the trials, there was a slightly greater proportion of eyes that, but very insignificant difference, but there was a difference. The question is how this will translate out into real-world practice. Um, the hope it, it it won't do what brolicizumab did. There was certainly no case of occlusive, occlusive vasculitis, but there seems to have been a mild increase in inflammation that was noted in some of the verisimab trials. And, and there's another interesting uh, uh, theoretical issue with angiopoietin 2 inhibition, because in pathological conditions, angiopoietin 2 is a 
antagonist of the type 2 receptor. But there are, but in quiescent situations, there are situations in, in, the, in the body and also in the eye, where in quiescent situations, angiopoietin 2 is also an agonist of the type 2 receptor, just like angiopoietin 1. So it may be that when you have sort of quieted the whole disease down with inhibiting VGF and angiopoietin 2, that inhibition of the agonist function of angiopoietin 2 may have some long-term uh, unwanted effects. That is a theoretical consideration. Ramin? Um, I think, as usual, there will be early adopters and late adopters, and they are good reason for this. So early adopters want to have the benefit immediately, and late adopters will uh, rightly say, okay, this has been tested in 2,500 patients, I will wait until it's tested and used in 100,000 patients to see all the side effects that are possible. Until it's really used in a wide market, you never know. So nobody can say there is zero risk. But as Usha underlined, at least with the data we have, there was no retinal vasculitis, which is one of the points in which we are very sensitive these days. But um, So we don't have a very hard signal other than there was a little bit there was more inflammation in the eye, which is higher than aflibercept, but was not very high compared to other phase three trials. I think the one of the points is to look for is aflibercept is super safe. All the trials show mm. that there is really very, very, very few effects with, with this drug. It, we were lucky to have early two very super safe drugs, which is not so often in medicine that you have effective safe drugs. And we are very lucky for this. It was interesting in the very, very, very start, I can re recall the very early studies with um, ranibizumab, there was inflammation in the eye. And yeah. then, but then something was changed, right, yes. in the formulation or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, 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 it cost them a few years, actually, in, in the beginning. Yeah. I, I think I, I have one other point that I think is, is relevant here. That um, of course, ranibizumab is going off patent uh, soon, and aflibercept within four or five years. And looking at cost effectiveness of our uh, of our treatments, our our millions of uh, of injections. For, for me, it's, it's I think it's important to to have a look at the actual cost effectiveness of new drugs in in light of of the available availability of 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 the original drugs that have come in that come in cheaper forms. So that is one one aspect that uh, that may be important in the in the future when when we start having to make choices which drug uh, to use. And I'm, and I'm sure this is something that will be definitely dealt with by the payers and the various yeah. HMOs in the in the virus systems, health systems in different countries. Yeah. Do you think it will be, make a big effect in Switzerland? Well, in Switzerland, no, because they they always use the most expensive drugs. But in the <laughs> Netherlands, yes. <laughs> <laughs> in Israel, for sure. <laughs> well, I, I mean, in the Netherlands, as ophthalmologists, we, we, we try to play a role in this and we, we try not to make the payers decide for us, but we try to hand in the data and, 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 and do the suggestions. What is a, a cost effective approach to, uh, to treating retinal disease? And if there's no benefit of, of no, no real cost effective benefit of a, of a drug that is 10 times more expensive, then, then we are happy to choose a more a cheaper drug. So you think cost effectiveness will play a, a greater role in the future and we might go back to treat uh, some DME patients uh, again with uh, laser treatment? 
No, no, but but, but Rana Bismuth and Flipperset will, will at a certain point become very cheap, so or at least or they are biosimilars, so that 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 landscape will change. Yeah. Can I can I just bring up one more quick point? It's a very quick one, and any of the panelists look at this. So the two-step improvement in diabetic retinopathy score was nearly ten percent higher in the uh, ferrisumab eight-weekly arm. Does anybody feel that it is that is a useful bit of information? Uh, Ramin, you've done a lot of work on capillary non-perfusion and how anti-VEGFs don't seem to modify this. How do you want to explore this topic now that we have ferrisumab? I think that this is a very good question. So it's very complicated to answer. What we know is the sign of diabetic retinopathy disappear, but we don't have really any data on what appeared to the diabetic retinopathy itself if we define it as capillary occlusion, because there is different definition for So I think the, the jury is still out, but I'm not convinced by the result. The fact that it decreased the sign differently shows that maybe mechanism of disappearance of hemorrhages or some vascular abnormality uh, are affected by the ANCH2. So this shows some kind of biologic effect, but we have still to go into the details and understand that the, we, our old classification is not working once you have drugs in the eye. Great. I think we have to uh, wrap up. And uh, also on behalf of Anat, uh, I really would like to thank our uh, panelists for a great discussion. I think it's uh, fantastic that the pharma companies are developing new drugs for our diseases, diseases that we try to treat. And as you can see, there's still a lot of work for us to do to, uh, to implement and to find a place for these uh, new drugs. And I hope this podcast has uh, has helped uh, our audience to uh, to form their thoughts and uh, and make the right decisions. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, and thank you all the panelists, and thank you Remier and uh, for a wonderful uh, chairing. And uh, I hope uh, that all of us uh, enjoyed it. And uh, I I have to say that I learned a lot from the discussion. Well, thanks so much, Anat, and thank you to our expert panel for getting through that so efficiently. Uh, they were Anat Lowenstein, Renier Schlingerman. Uh, Ramin Tadayoni, Sandrine Zweifel and Usha Chakravarthi and that's it from us on the podcast uh, if you do like what we're doing here please subscribe and rate let people know about the podcast we'd really appreciate you spreading the word for us if you have any questions or would like to suggest something that we should cover you can email us podcast at uretina.org our next episode will be in two weeks I'm Jonathan McRae and I'll see you next time on Talking Uretina Retina.